Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ and welcome to Christ Church of Livingston County Teaching Ministry. Christ Church is a member of the Communion of Reformed Evangelical Churches, Tyndale Presbytery. The following audio recording is from a Covenant Renewal Liturgy at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. I call the confession today as Proverbs 29, verse 12. If a ruler listens to falsehood, all his officials will be wicked. There's an important interplay here between the righteousness of the people in the street and the righteousness on the throne. Okay, we don't have a throne, but we do have Lansing in Washington, D.C., and the two are interconnected, the righteousness of the two. You cannot have one without the other. This means that you get the kind of that we get the kind of leadership that we deserve. If a king, and again, no kings here, but we do have governors, we do have a president, we do have parents. If, we listen to, if they listen to liars, they're going to get a lot more of what they subsidize. To, again, from today's proverb, if a ruler listens to falsehood, all his officials will be wicked. They will start to think, well, if that's what it takes to get ahead around here, then I guess I can follow suit. When lies are told in the corridors of power, those lies will either be rewarded or they'll be punished. Which it is will determine what we get more of. And what's the antidote for lies? Of course, it's truth. And what's the source of truth? Of course, it's God. God himself and his word. Second Samuel 22 says, This God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. And continuing down the Trinity, we see truth in God the Son. John 14, 1, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as, the, as of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. And we see truth in the Holy Spirit as well, John 15, but when the Helper comes, whom, will I, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. Lies are counter, counterfeits of truth. And when dealing with counterfeit money, federal agents don't learn to spot counterfeit money by studying the counterfeits. You've heard this before, this saying before. They study the genuine bills until they recognize the look of the real thing. And when they see the bogus money, they recognize it. Likewise, let us study and know the truth so completely that we are in no way part and parcel to any falsehoods in our lives. First Kings 8, let your heart be holy, therefore be wholly true to the Lord of God walking in his statutes and keeping his commandments as at this day. This reminds us of our need to confess our sins. Please kneel where you are if you're willing to pray. So, when we uh, look at our culture, the day in which we live, and maybe even if we're honest and we look at ourselves, uh, we oftentimes see a mess, right? We, we will see a mess. And uh, it can kind of get a little bit discouraging. I mean, you look at the things around us and our disintegrating culture and our disintegrating nation, and we see it fractured and divided and full of wickedness and that kind of thing. And it can be depressing, almost hopeless at times. And then we throw in our families into the mix and we see some of the messiness of our families, maybe 
our extended family, and all of that. And then we see ourselves and we see the sins that we struggle with and our temptations and the things that we do and we don't want to do, and then we do them again and, and all of those things. And we're looking at all of that. It can get almost overwhelming at times, right? You ever feel that way? All right. So today's two short pithy parables give us encouragement, okay? Encouragement amidst the mess. They give us a simple truth and offer us great hope. Hope in God and what he is doing, okay? Not necessarily what we're doing, but what God is doing, okay? Now, I have to confess that these two little parables that we're going to be looking at, um, they have been life-changing to me. It might seem a little odd to you that these two parables would be life-changing to me, but it is what it is. These have transformed my thinking about the world and about what God is doing in this world as I've reflected on these two little parables over the years. All right? These also were the straw that broke the camel's back, so to speak, in pushing me to become post-millennial in my eschatology. All right? And so these are dear to me. Through these two little parables, these stories, as I've said, the parables are similes, right? I learned that the Lord Jesus is going to win the battle. He's about winning the battle that's out there. He's going to win the war. He's going to fill this earth with his goodness and his mercy and love. And they have opened up my eyes to other texts as well, some that we'll see today that show that Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth. So, these little parables, right? I remember meditating on these parables almost 20 years ago and just thinking through them, and they kept bouncing around in my head for a couple years as I was just, I couldn't get them out of my head as I was thinking through uh, a whole bunch of stuff having to do with God's world and how he made it and what Jesus is doing and, and all of these things. And, and again, eschatology, eschatology, end, time, end times kind of stuff, right? All right. So these simple truths, these simple things that God is using to teach us but there's also, in the, in the simplicity of it, mind-blowing profundity in these things. These, these little texts are profound, and hopefully we'll be able to see some of that today. Um, so, let's go ahead and read through these. Alright, so we're in Matthew chapter 13, and beginning in verse 31 through 35. So again, let us hear the word of the Lord. Another parable he put forth to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field, which indeed is the least of all the seeds, but when it is grown, it is greater than the herbs and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. Another parable he spoke to them, The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal, till it is all leavened. All these things Jesus spoke to the multitude in parables, and without a parable he did not speak to them, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, I will open my mouth in parables, I will utter things kept secret from the foundation of the world. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you for your word here. Lord, we thank you uh, for inspiring these words, and Lord, we thank you that your word is eternally true. And Lord, we pray as we come before you this day and we hear your word, proclaim to us that the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts might be acceptable unto you, O Lord. You are our redeemer and our rock and our fortress. And we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. 
All right, in Matthew 13, Jesus gives a number of parables, okay? So as you go through there, they're important parables. There's important things that he's talking about, and Jesus has started speaking to the people in parables. All right, and that's how he's going to talk to uh, the people that he's ministering to, his disciples, and the people of Israel, kind of the rest of the book of Matthew, if you will. All right? So the first parable in chapter 13 is about the sower. And it shows us people with hard hearts who don't hear. They refuse to hear the word. They have hard hearts, like a path that's beaten down and the seed can't take uh, uh, root there. Okay? And it shows us people that have superficial interests as well in the word, but it fades quickly. And others who hear the gospel word, but it gets choked out by the cares of the world. Right? And then others do hear and see and believe and bear fruit. And so we have these four different types. But this parable also speaks, that, that parable of the sower also speaks to our own hearts. And so it helps us to ask questions about our own faith. Like, where might we have hard hearts? Right? Where do we show superficial faith in our lives? Right? Where do we get distracted away from the kingdom of God? You know, do we want to see? The, the whole point of the parables, as we see here, is do we want to see? Do we want to hear? Do we want to understand? Or do we have hard hearts that don't want to see, don't want to hear, don't want to understand? And it shows us that Jesus offers hope. That while not all Christians are the same, some bear more fruit than others, still his people bear fruit. His people do bear fruit and grow, though sometimes it's by fits and starts. But they are growing because he has started a good work in them and will see it through to completion. Right? So God's work continues and advances. The second parable is about the sower who plants good seed, but the enemy, the devil, comes and tries to ruin the harvest. All right? So that's the parable of the wheat and the tares, right? And so the devil comes and tries to ruin the harvest by sowing, you know, this bad seed amongst the seed of that, that's weed seeds, right? And they grow up together for a time, and they look very similar, all right? But then... After a while, you realize, uh-oh, our enemy has been here. we got a problem, right? And so we see in that, and we know that everywhere God creates good stuff. Everywhere that God creates good stuff, though, is the enemy. Satan tries to pervert the good things that God gives us. So he gives us government, and so we have government that can be good, but then it can be, become perverted, right? And it can... can uh, be oppressive and it can have all sorts of uh, bad authority that's given to it he gives he's given us things like sex in a marriage and uh and then he'll pervert that with pornography and and all types of stuff like that uh, adultery he gives us technology and then we can take that technical technology and do bad things with it right so we have good technology we can pervert it friendships right how often do friendships have problems you know he gives us good friendship and then those things get perverted same with family while it looks like a total mess god has a solution right and he tells us in that parable wait till the end wait till the end wait till the judgment be patient in the midst of this world that has tares in it and he is going to sort things out and that's his encouragement to us he'll separate the wheat and the tares be patient he'll separate them in the world and in the church and again, this is a message of hope that God is in control, that 
that he is in control of all of these things, that he's sovereign. And so these parables can be sobering. We want to see them sobering. They can prick us and help us to see where we need to repent. But in the end, they are full of hope because of who God is and what he's doing in the world as he writes his story. And so he moves on into, Jesus now moves on into these little parables of the mustard seed and the leaven. So let's go to those. So as I said a month ago, parables are simple stories. And here too, right? We have simple things here in the story. We have mustard seeds and yeast, right? Very simple. Mustard seeds, we get that. We all know what mustard is. And yeast. One planted in the field, the other put into flour. And plants grow, right? And they grow up and they reach maturity and things like that. We, we see that around us. We see flour and you put yeast in it and it gets leavened and we get that, right? So there's not, nothing too complicated about those concepts, right? All right. But Jesus is saying some pretty profound things here. And he's saying some things that are going to make his disciples pause. Okay? So let's look at those things. All right? The first parable is about the mustard seed. And there is all sorts of speculation when you read the commentators about what it is. What seed is he talking about here? You know, is the mustard seed. The mustard seed. Um, and, and so it's not the smallest seed. And so we have those who disbelieve the Bible casting doubt because they say, we have discovered that there are smaller seeds than the mustard seed. So Jesus isn't telling the truth here, right? And the mustard seed doesn't grow into a tree. And so Jesus is mistaken here, and so they cast doubt upon the word of God. You've got to get the context and the point of what Jesus is saying here. That's, Jesus isn't giving a science lesson. He's trying to make a point here, right? All right, so they, they cast all this doubt upon it and, and all of that, okay? But the seed... All right, mustard seed is very tiny. It's in the brassica family, and it's small. If you know what a brassica is, we're talking like broccoli and cauliflower. Anybody ever seen one of those seeds? Okay, very tiny. They are they are very tiny, aren't they? Okay, they're small seeds. Okay, and so uh, in Palestine, there's a plant called black mustard, which grows. Okay, and it grows there abundantly, and all of that. And the problem with the black mustard plant is that it only grows to be about 8 or 10 feet high. And it's not a woody plant. It doesn't turn into a tree or a bush or a shrub or anything like that. It isn't very tall, and it isn't woody. Pigweed. Everybody know what pigweed is? Those who garden know what pigweed is, right? And if you let pigweed grow, it can get 6 or 8 feet tall. Our pigweed grows out in our pig pen (laughs) where we've left our pigs. And it'll grow about 8 or 10 feet high, you know. And it's a pretty heavy-duty plant, but it's not like, it, it's gone once winter comes. Right? There isn't any remnant of it in the spring again, right? And so it's gone. It's not a woody plant. It doesn't stay there like that, okay? But that's, so when you think of the black mustard plant, think that, that type of plant. It's like the pigweed plant, okay? It's similar to that, okay? And so... That's part of the surprise of it, right? Even though it gets pretty big, it's still not what Jesus describes in here. It's not a tree. It's not woody. You wouldn't think 
birds are going to go make their nests in it and all of that. Okay, And that's part of what would have made the disciples pause and think and wonder, what are you talking about here, Jesus? We know what mustard is. And it doesn't grow like you're describing here. It doesn't grow into a tree. And that's part of the surprise of it. Right? So they're thinking, what's Jesus getting at here? That's what his disciples, in their context, are thinking. And we, we kind of miss that because we don't understand kind of the plants and stuff that are growing that are common in Palestine and all of that. So it's helpful for us to know that. Okay? And mustard doesn't grow into a tree where birds can come and, and rest. And Jesus does that. He, he gives twists to the story like that. And he's got a point as he's telling this. And so he twists things up. He adds elements to his, his stories that intrigue us and help us consider and wonder at what he's saying so that we get the point of what he's saying. But he forces us to con- contemplate those things and to consider those things. All right? And then he talks about leaven. And he says, A woman who hid leaven in three measures... Uh, as the New King James and the ESV says, or pecks, as the NASB says, or a large amount, as the NIV says. Okay, So here this woman takes and hides leaven in three measures of meal or flour until it was all leavened. And again, we don't get the measurement of this. Okay, We don't, we don't understand what Jesus is talking about here. We think, okay, three measures, so Jesus is making three loaves of bread. That's what he's getting at, right? But this is... This is surprising, too, when we understand what Jesus is saying here. Three measures. What three measures is, this is like 40 or 50 pounds of flour. Does anybody bake? You ever take 40 or 50 pounds of flour and bake? Not unless you're a baker or you're making something for a lot of people, right? I mean, we're talking a bag, five-gallon bucket full, more than a five-gallon bucket full of flour. This is a lot, okay? And again... So the disciples are thinking, what in the world are you talking about, Jesus? This is a lot, okay? And the only person that's going to use that amount of, you're not going to use that for, you know, like, cooking for your family, for a few loaves for your family, okay? But a baker might use this much, okay? So the Lord is saying something here, pretty profound, that would have the disciples saying in both of these parables, what, what? Jesus, what are you talking about? Okay. Now, when we're talking about the leaven, there's another story way back in Genesis where a woman actually uses three measures of flour. Where she actually uses three measures of flour, same wording, to bake some cakes. Okay? You know where that is? It's when the three angels come to Abraham under the, under the tree of Mamre. Okay? Remember that in Genesis 18. All right, And so these three angels come, and Abraham's like, you know, kind of freaking out a little bit. And so he runs to Sarah, and he says, quick, 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 we got, we got three guests here. We got a, and, and the angel of the Lord, he doesn't quite get yet that it's the angel of the Lord that's there as well. And so he's quick, we got, a, we got some important guests here. Make three measures of wheat, okay? for these guests and stuff. And so he tells her about this. And um, he goes out then, and he's going to slaughter the fatted calf. And so this is all going to take time to do, right? If you're going to bake 
three loaves of, or three measures of bread. This is a lot of bread. This is going to take time. And you don't just go butcher and then 10 minutes later you got a meal on the table, right? And this is all time, okay? And this is all part of Jesus' point. He wants us to get. He wants us to be led back. Okay, where else do we see three measures of flour? All right? And in the context of this in Genesis 18, do you remember why those angels came? There's two reasons why those angels came. Those messengers came. One was to give them the promise, okay, to give Abraham and Sarah the promise of a son, okay, that he was coming, right? Remember that? And this is the son of the promise. The other, the other one that, that doesn't fit into what we're talking about today, but it was judgment, Sodom and Gomorrah, right? And they, they had come for that. But in the context of this, so there's two things that are going on, and one of those things is to give them the promise, okay? It has to do with the kingdom of heaven, okay? And, and so if you remember, um, these three measures would draw back our minds and the minds of the disciples to the Abrahamic covenant and the account of Abraham and the promises that were made to him. And it has to do, the promises have to do with the kingdom of heaven, both in Genesis and here, that it will grow and expand. And so we see in that, that Abraham is promised a son, and that over the course of Genesis 18 through 22, that we have the Abrahamic covenant, which promises that a son will come, but then all the nations will be blessed, right? And his descendants will be as the stars in the, in the sky, and as a sand on the, on the seashore, right? Big. It's getting bigger. It's going to expand. He's promising Abraham a big, big progeny, okay? And so it's going to expand and get bigger. These two parables are a bit strange to the disciples' ears on purpose for the disciples to think, what is going on here? What are you talking about, Jesus? And so they... Jesus is drawing them to see the extraordinary measures that he's talking to them about. And they have to do with the kingdom of heaven, just as his story back in Genesis 18 is. So where do we go in scripture to understand more clearly the kingdom of heaven? There are a number of places to help us understand. And a place where Jesus is probably drawing ours and the disciples' attention to the kingdom is back in, in uh, Daniel 2 chapter 31, or verses 31 to 45. Okay, so the analogy of faith, it's a, it's a thing that we want to do, that is taking scripture and comparing scripture with scripture and trying to gain a greater understanding through scripture as scripture interprets itself. Okay, so if you have your Bibles, let's turn to Daniel chapter 2 and 31 through 45. Now, just to explain the context, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream, right? And this is a disturbing dream here that he has. And so he wants an interpretation. He wants to know what's being, being said here in this dream to him. And it's so disturbing that he's you know, kind of mulling it over and all of that. And so he asks his wise men to give him the interpretation of the dream. But he one-ups them. Because usually you would tell them what the dream was about, and he wants to know that they are telling him the truth. And so he says, not only do I want you to give me the interpretation of the dream, I want you to give me the dream. 
and then give me the interpretation. You tell me what the dream is. See, he's got, he's got some wisdom going on here. He doesn't want just anybody giving him the interpretation. He wants somebody that knows the dream, and then he'll know that the interpretation is right. Okay? And they're all like, what? You're crazy. We can't do that. And then Daniel comes along. Right? And Daniel says, well, I can't do it, but God can give me the wisdom to understand what's being said here. It's God. And he draws his attention back to God. Okay, so that's the context for coming into verse 31. And he says, you, king, you, O king, were watching, and behold, a great image. This great image, whose splendor was excellent, stood before you, and its form was awesome. This image's head was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. You watched. Now, here's a key verse, so 34, keep that in mind. You watched while a stone was cut out without hands, which struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed together and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. The wind carried them away so that no trace of them was found. And the stone that struck the image, another key, the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. So then he says, this is the dream. This is the dream that you had, right? Now, we will tell the interpretation of it before the king. You, O king, are a king of kings. For the God of heaven has given you a kingdom, power, strength, and glory. And wherever the children of men dwell, or the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens, he has given them into your hand, and he has made you ruler over them all. You are this head of gold. But after you shall arise another kingdom inferior to yours, then another a third kingdom of bronze which shall rule over the earth, and the fourth kingdom shall be as strong as iron, inasmuch as iron breaks in pieces and shatters everything, and like iron that crushes, that kingdom will break in pieces and crush all the others. Whereas you saw the feet and toes partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, the kingdom shall be divided. Yet the strength of the iron shall be in it, just as you saw the iron mixed with ceramic clay, and as the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly fragile. As you saw, iron mixed with ceramic clay, they will mingle with the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another, just as iron does not mix with clay. All right? Now, this, this is so accurate to history that scholars studying this, liberal scholars studying this, say he had this, whoever wrote Daniel, they don't believe Daniel did it, Whoever wrote Daniel must have written it after time because this is just too accurate for what happened. You have the Babylonian Empire, a perfect description of the Babylonian Empire, and then the Persian Empire that came after, and then the Greek Empire, and then the Roman Empire, which remained strong for a time, but then it was divided right, with the Caesars. That's the description that Nebuchadnezzar gets. In verse 44, And in the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom, get this, which shall never be destroyed. So in those, that time of the, the kings, of the, the iron and the clay, in those days, a kingdom will be set up, which shall never be destroyed. The God of heaven will set this up, 
and the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. Inasmuch as you saw that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will come to pass after this. And then he says, this dream is certain and its interpretation is true. Right? And Nebuchadnezzar could understand that because he gave him the dream. This is the dream and this is the interpretation. So God has shown Nebuchadnezzar the coming history of the kingdoms of the earth until Christ comes. All right? Jesus will come in the time of the divided empire of Rome. And as we see in 44, and in these days, these kings, the God of heaven, in these days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. In those days, a new kingdom will come. The God of heaven will set up his kingdom of heaven. And his kingdom of heaven will be unconquerable, unending, steadfast, eternal. It will stand forever. Who brings this to pass? The stone cut without hands. And who is the stone? He's the chief cornerstone that we find in 1 Peter 2. He's the capstone in Zechariah 4.7. He's the stone that crushes and grinds to powder that Jesus describes in Matthew 21. It is Jesus. Right? Jesus comes in the midst of these kings. His kingdom starts small, like a little stone, but expands from a rock, a little stone, into a mountain that fills the whole earth. All right? Now think about that. It's kind of like a little mustard seed that grows into a big tree. Right? It's kind of like leaven that is hidden in a measure, three measures of meal and grows into a bunch of bread. Right? Now as we see this mustard plant, we see that, we see that birds come and nest in its branches. And so the picture of birds nesting in the branches of a tree is a symbol of a good kingdom. And we find this picture in Daniel 4. Okay, so two, two chapters over, Jan, Daniel 4 and verse 10, we see this. These were the visions of my head while on my bed. I was looking, and behold, a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong. Its height reached to the heavens, and it could be seen to the ends of the earth. Its leaves were lovely, its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it. The birds of the heavens dwelt in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. The only problem is that in chapter 4 here in Daniel, that's a description of Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom. Okay, It's a kingdom that pointed ahead to the true kingdom, which is Jesus. Okay, But this kingdom was going to be taken away from Nebuchadnezzar, and the tree was going to be cut down as you see the description continuing on. But it led to the humbling of Nebuchadnezzar and his resting in the branches of the true king, who is God Almighty. Okay? Into the true branches of the true king, of the true kingdom. And we see at the end of chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar saying this, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, all of whose works are truth and his ways justice and those who walk in pride he is able to put down because that's exactly what happened to Nebuchadnezzar, isn't it? He was humbled. He was taken away from his kingdom. For seven years he ate grass in the field like an ox. 
And then he gives recognition to God Almighty. And he rests in the branches of the true king. All right? We get a, a vision of that kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, found in Ezekiel 17 as well. All right? Ezekiel 17. Thus the Lord God said, I will take one of the highest branches of the high cedar and set it out, and I will crop off from the topmost of its young twigs a tender one, and will plant it on a high and permanent mountain. On the mountain height of Israel I will plant it, and it will bring forth boughs and bear fruit and be a majestic cedar. And get this, under it will dwell birds of every sort. In the shadow of its branches they will dwell. And all the trees of the field shall know that I, the Lord, have brought down the high tree and exalted the low tree, dried up the green tree and made the dry tree flourish. I, the Lord, have spoken and done it. Okay? Read that over again. So, you see, Jesus was telling them what his kingdom was like. He's telling his disciples what his kingdom was, what, was like. What he was inaugurating in the midst of the divided Roman Empire, partly of iron, partly of clay. Okay? Leaven. What about that? Now, you may have heard and thought that leaven is always bad. Do you ever hear that? You ever think that? You know, when we have leaven, you know, a lot of people think, Leaven is always seen as bad in Scripture, but it's not. Okay, it's there are it's a symbol. Okay, and in the context, it can be bad, and it can be good. Okay, and it depends on the context in which you're reading. And there's all sorts of symbols, right? We oftentimes are are taught, people are taught, a lot of times in seminary and stuff like that that. One symbol means, once you find the meaning of a symbol, it always means that. And that's just not true, okay? And so the context matters. And so we have all sorts of symbols um, in Scripture that can go back and forth depending on the context, right? So water can be good and life-giving and cleansing and and the water of baptism. And it can also kill Pharaoh and the floods in the world. So you have good and bad. you got lions. Satan goes about as a roaring lion. But Jesus is called the lion of the tribe of Judah. Right? So good, bad, good lions, bad lions. Right? Snakes. Satan is a serpent. He's bad. But Jesus says if he's lifted up like the serpent in the wilderness, he will draw all men to himself. Right? Fire can show judgment. And our tongues can be sinful like a fire causing damage, as James says. But God is a consuming fire. Right? And the Holy Spirit rested on his disciples, his apostles, in the tongue of fire. Right? So symbols are not static. They're, they're fluid, and context determines whether it's good or bad. And so leaven and Passover was a symbol for sin. But in Leviticus 7.13, the peace offering was to be brought with leavened bread. Okay? And so you have good and bad. So we're told to stay away from the leaven of the Pharisees. But here, leaven in this context is good. And I bring that up because that's one of the interpretations of the leaven. Is that because leaven is always bad, then leaven here must mean that evil increases in the world. Okay? And so, that's an interpretation that's out there. Be aware of that. That's not the context of what's going on in chapter 13, is it? Jesus is giving hope and encouragement and all of that. And so we need the context of the symbol to determine its meaning. And here the kingdom of heaven is like yeast, and it permeates. This is the kingdom of heaven. It permeates and flows into and affects all. And once it starts, you don't stop it, right? 
Once leaven gets in there, it's in there. And you're not going to stop it. You can't take the leaven back out, right? All right, so here, the main point of these two parables is this. The kingdom of heaven starts small, starts tiny. It's almost imperceptible. In the eyes of the Romans and the Jews, Christianity, all these disciples, it's a non-entity. It's a non-entity. We're just going to crush it. We're going to put it down. We're going to crucify this dude. And then we'll be done with it. Right? But that's not the case. It starts small, tiny, imperceptible, but it grows and expands and engulfs and permeates all things and the nations will find shade in the branches and will be fed, fed by its fruit. And the whole lump of the earth will be leavened by the kingdom of heaven. And it will be changed. Right? All of it affected by the gospel. And once it starts, it can't be stopped. It can't be stopped. And everything in the world is going to be affected by the gospel. Everything in the world is going to be affected by the good news of who Jesus Christ is. That's going to go larger than anything we can expect. And that's the point of the large measures of meal. And that's the point of the tree. Right? It's bigger than what you expect. It's not just a pigweed that's 8 or 10 feet. It grows into a tree. It's bigger than you could ever expect. And that's what he's telling his disciples. And it's a large measure of dough. It's going to be bigger than you can even possibly imagine. Okay? Ezekiel 47 gives us a likewise thing. And I'm not going to read through that. But just, that's the temple, the water flowing out of the temple, right? You remember that passage? And the water's flowing out of the temple, and then it's ankle high, and then it's to his knees, and then it's to his waist, and then it's so big that you can't even cross it, you have to swim across, and you can't even cross it, right? Remember that description? That's like, the, that's the kingdom of God, expanding and growing in this world. The ever-increasing waters of the kingdom of heaven continuing to expand. And yet we have a hard time believing that, don't we? We have a hard time believing this. We look at our circumstances around us and doubt his word is true. Don't we? Right? We doubt that the, his word is true. We get discouraged. We see our nation in the West in decline. And we think like the fetus. But ask ourselves, has this expansion of the kingdom of heaven happened? Or at the least, has it started to happen? Is it going on right now? Do we see evidences of this expansion of the kingdom of heaven? And the answer is absolutely. So in the first 300 years, Christianity, the first 300 years of Christianity, from the time that Christ was resurrected and ascended until Constantine, the church grew from 12 to 5 to 8 million people in the first 300 years in the Roman Empire, right? All over the Roman Empire. It permeated the entire Roman Empire, right, in just 300 years. And today, there are 2.2 billion people that claim to be Christians in the world, of 6 billion. So a third 
of the population of the world claim Christ. Now, that doesn't mean every one of those is a born-again believer. But nonetheless, a third of the population of the world is claiming Christ. Okay? Expansion is taking place. It's going on. That's almost double the size of Islam. All right? It's almost double the size of Islam. And Christianity is having a huge impact in the world of Islam right now. All right? So it's going. It's, it's going to all the continents. Unlike Islam, Christianity is on all the continents. And it's growing and expanding right now. Okay, so remember what God says in these passages. The stone cut without hands, the kingdom of heaven in Daniel will grow and expand and fill the earth. And it will never be destroyed, but will crush the opposition. Jesus intends to conquer the world. Okay, think of uh, Psalm 2. Right? And we see that in Psalm 2. It's a kingly psalm. Matthew 28. In those passages, they reveal to us that he is sovereign, that Jesus is sovereign. He's, he has all authority in heaven and earth. He's doing this through the preaching of the gospel. And he's telling his disciples to go forth into the world and do this. Do this work of making disciples. And Jesus announced exactly this when he first came. In Mark 1, we hear Jesus saying, where it says, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom and saying the time is fulfilled. What time is fulfilled? The time for the kingdom to begin its work as a mustard seed and begin to expand. The time has come and it is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. And so... The gospel message goes forth into preaching, teaching throughout the world. Okay? Now, application. How about some application for us? Alright? So, if the Bible is clear about the slow and growing expansion of the kingdom, though by fits and starts, why do we have a hard time believing this? Right? Why do we have, because we, we are consumed by what's going on around us. Why do we think, that, though, that the world is too big and too bad for, us, for it to be changed? Why do we think that the, the, the world is too much of a mess to be changed? Right? That's bad thinking on our part. That's not biblical thinking. That's not Christianity. That's not... So, John three sixteen and 17 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Right? And then... We oftentimes forget 17, and we say, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Right? So Jesus is about the task of bringing the world, all of it, under his dominion. So that every knee, just like we read in Philippians, every knee shall bow, heaven and earth, under the earth, and every tongue confesses Jesus is Lord. He is about that task. This is what Jesus is doing. And when he's doing that, saving the world, it's, it's like you know the mustard seed growing from a tiny seed and expanding into a huge tree. It's like leavened dough going into that. It's like a stone 
that starts off with a stone and comes out into a big mountain and fills the whole earth, right? It's like water, right? Filling everything, like the water's covering the sea, okay? We think that our nation is too far gone to come to repentance, but God's word says things like this in Psalm 86.9. All nations whom you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. All the nations shall come and worship before you. So do we believe God's word? Do we believe God's promises? Do we believe his word about the nations or our own circumstances? And are we looking at only our own circumstances and only what we see around us right now? Right? We need to have a bigger view. And it was promises like these that inspired Martin Luther and John Calvin and John Knox to take heart and believe the promises of God and what God says so that they go out and they spread the gospel to their nations. It's stuff like that. It's these scriptures that inspired Knox to pray, give me Scotland or I die. All right? They had the big vision of what God is doing in this world and they didn't get caught up in all the day-to-day stuff because they could. It was a mess during the time of the Reformation for all of them. But you see, it can be convenient for us to think it's just too far gone because then we can just hunker down and prepare for disaster and not do anything. Right? And so we can just take a back seat. The second thing that we sometimes think is that my family is too far gone. My brother or my sister or my parents or my aunt or uncle or whoever it is in your family, your child, is too much of a mess. It's impossible for their salvation. They're just too far gone. But you see, God is in the business of saving families. And he uses your little bit of leaven that you have as a Christian to go forth and do so. You have the ability to tell your family how you were saved by Christ, right? And that you believe his word. And here's one promise that's for you and your family. Psalm 22. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For the kingdom is the Lord's, and he rules over the nations. You see that? All the families of the nations shall worship before you. Families. Who do you trust and believe? God and his word? Or what you see with your own eyes? The third thing we sometimes think is that I'm too much of a mess. I'm too much of a sinner. Woe is me. I'm too far gone for God to save or to use or to do anything with. I've just done too much. I've been engaged in too much wickedness. I'm too much of a fool. I don't, I'm not eloquent, right, like Moses said. Colossians 1 says this. We give thanks to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of your love for, for all the saints because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, of which you heard before in the word of truth of the gospel, which has come to you, as it has also in all the world, and is bringing forth fruit, as it is also among you, since the day you heard it and knew the grace of God in truth. You see, the gospel has come to you. The gospel has come to you. And it's bearing fruit. If you are Christ's, It is bearing fruit. 
may not be as much fruit as somebody else's, but is bearing fruit in your life. Some 30, some 60, some 100-fold, right? But it is, nonetheless, bearing fruit and increasing in you just as it is in the world. Will we believe, will we believe God's word or not? That's the thing. Again, it's convenient for us not to believe. It's convenient for us to go on just living as I am because I'm too far gone. And we can say that's just the way I am. The way I am. Or we can say that's just the way our world is. Oh well. Or that's just the way my family is. But you see, that's not faith. That's not living by faith. We're called to believe the gospel and to believe God's word as Christians. To believe the promises and to believe the promise that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so we are called to repent of our unbelief, right? And even Christians can have a heart of unbelief with these things sometimes, right? We can get discouraged about this. But we are called to believe, right? We're called to believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And that he has all authority. And that means authority over you and all that you do and this world. And when you surrender yourself to him, he changes you. He is so able to do that. I mean, look what he's done in this world already. From 12, tiny little mustard seed, to 2.2 billion people. And that's not including everybody that's been saved all through the years, the last 2,000 years. It's such a better place to live today than it was 2,000 years ago. You know, we may not think that, but it, but it is such a better place to live than it was 2,000 years ago. And that's because the gospel has penetrated and leavened and the seed has grown and expanded into a large tree, and people have been changed, and families have been changed, and nations have been changed, and people have been changed, right? Because of the leaven that has gone forth. Because now we're sitting in the shade of the large mustard tree. Right? Is it not true? Are you going to believe God? Look, believe God. Okay? Here's the conclusion. Believe God. Trust in Jesus. Pray to Him when you have your doubts. Okay? Which we all do. We all have seasons of doubt and unbelief. Look, pray to God as one father once prayed when you find yourself in those situations. Lord, I believe. Now help thou my unbelief. And trust in Him. Look to Him. He is growing His kingdom even now. So let's look to Him. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank You for Your goodness and Your mercy to us. And we praise You for the hope that You have given to us in Your Son. We thank You that You have begun a good work in this world and in us and that you will see it through to completion. Oh Lord, we thank you that you are growing your kingdom in this world right now. And Lord, we pray that we would have faith to see these things and to rejoice in your goodness and your mercy. Lord, when we have doubts, when we look around us and see the circumstances, oh Lord, help us to be driven to your word 
and your word alone. Oh Lord, help us to see your promises that are given to us in it and to trust you and to rejoice in your goodness and mercy to us. And we pray that you would give us your peace, that we may rest in you. We pray this all in Jesus' most powerful name. I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. When the chief shepherd appears, his focus is the health and the care of the sheep. He watches over them, he guards them, he puts himself in danger, even willing to lay his life down for his sheep. He sets upright those who have been cast down. He leads them beside the still waters. He restores souls. Even in the valley of the shadow of death, that chief shepherd gently leads his sheep through the valley of dark through the valley of darkness into green pastures. His desire is that the health uh, is is that the health, the restoration and the preservation preservation of the flock continue. This table is all about that. When Jesus has compassion on his sheep, he does not leave them to fend for himself. He provides a meal, such a meal that makes his sheep fat and happy. We now eat and drink because Jesus is feeding us. He is the good shepherd. And good shepherds feed people well. Eat and drink in faith. Be made whole and strong in Christ. Thank you for listening to this audio recording from Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in this recording, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact us through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I.com. Again, thank you and blessings.